According to my guest today, innovation is actually no longer some Silicon Valley buzzword. Organizations of all kinds, business, political, education, cultural, charitable, they all know that the choice is to evolve or innovate or risk dying out. But it's my hypothesis that this word actually causes nonprofit leaders to break out in cold sweats. Why, you ask? Innovation. You want me to try something new? You want me to pilot something? You want me to take a chance that something I might try might fail? Innovation ignites the notion of risk-taking in the mindset of a nonprofit leader. And let's face it, nonprofit leaders worry about risk. It could lead to failure. And then we have nonprofit boards. They don't really like failure very much, and they really don't like risk. They often see their role as managing risk. And yet, the demand for social innovation is real. In his 2017 survey of 145 nonprofit leaders, the Bridgespan Group found 80% considered innovation to be an urgent imperative, but only 40% believe that their organizations are set up to do so. My guest today began her career in Silicon Valley. Before pivoting into the social sector, she was a seasoned technology executive with more than 20 years of experience at leading companies as Google, Apple, Intuit, as well as a range of startups. What happens when you try to apply the lessons of startup tech innovation to the social sector? Today, we ask someone who was faced with the cold, hard reality, the challenges, and she'll talk about how she grappled with them. And we'll hear some practical advice about introducing innovation into your work as a nonprofit leader. You'll also hear a phrase that's new to me, and I'm guessing it might be to you. It's called lean impact. <laughs> now, lean is a word the social sector knows a little bit too much about. Just running lean, being lean. But in this case, the phrase is actually a kind of a movement in the tech space that has real lessons and positive implications in the social sector. You'll want to listen. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, gets it. She is here to help. Ann Mae Chang is a leading advocate for social innovation who brings together unique insights from her extensive work across the tech industry, nonprofit, and the U.S. government. As Chief Innovation Officer at USAID, Ann May served as the first Executive Director of the U.S. Global Development Lab, engaging the best solutions for innovation from Silicon Valley to accelerate the impact and scale of solutions to the world's most intractable challenges. I love that word, intractable. She was previously the Chief Innovation Officer at Mercy Corps and served in the United States Department of State as Senior Advisor for Women and Technology in the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues. And if that's not enough, prior to her pivot to the public and social sector, Ann May was a seasoned technology executive with more than two decades of experience at leading companies such as Google, Apple, and Intuit. As the Senior Engineering Director at Google, she led worldwide engineering for mobile applications and services, delivering 20 times growth to $1 billion in annual revenue in just three years. I'm thinking that my listeners want to have what you're having, Ann Mae Chang. Thank you so much for joining us. So great to see you again, Joan. It's been a long time. Um, 
So it's really happy. It's really nice to connect with you after what feels like a century, but probably is a decade or two. Um, so during my tenure as a nonprofit executive director, Ann May was one of our board members. Uh, and I remember many a conversation with you about your interest in making this pivot um, from life in Silicon Valley to the social sector. Um, and based on what I have just read and what I've learned and what your new book, I'm really happy you did because I know it was a long, uh, for a long time, a part of your professional path. Um, I grew to appreciate your strategic skills as a board member, and I'm really interested in understanding how you applied them to make this pivot that you were so deeply passionate about. So the first question I asked, I wanted to ask is, what was this pivot like for you? Um, I knew you wanted to make it long ago. Um, was it everything that you hoped it would be? Um, you know, it's been fantastic, and I've never looked back. Uh, it, it's been, at times, incredibly challenging, baffling, but <laughs> overall just so inspiring. I've just never been more excited to get up to go to work every morning. Because um, now I get to work on things that feel like they really matter. Um, you know, I... It, Working in the tech space is a heady place to be, you know, lots of smart people, lots of um, new new gadgets, and um, it's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. um, but but I never felt like what I did mattered as much as what I do now. It's really, um, it's really interesting, M.A., because uh, you know that I came from corporate America and I was part of the management team that launched MTV. And so I had a um, kind of a, I had startups in my DNA as well. And in fact, uh, during my, I think my interview for my nonprofit gig, I talked a lot about the diff that what I learned was that there was a similar gestalt between um, startups and the nonprofit sector. Has, is that something you've learned? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also I worked at you know both big companies and small companies, and and in the in the social sector and public sector, I've worked mostly in larger organizations to date. Um, but you know, there's a similar sort of passion and drive, but driven by very different things. I think in the for-profit sector, people are driven by profit, whereas in the nonprofit sector, people are generally more driven by mission. And one of the things that I've loved the most about this new career of mine is the people I get to work with. You know, in, uh -huh. in, the, in the tech world, I mostly worked with young male geeks. Um, and, <laughs> and now I get to work with these amazing people who've had such colorful lives, have lived all different parts of the world, have just amazing stories stories about the things they've done and are so driven by their values. And so I, I love the people I get to work with. And, you know, even though there's a lot of similarities, there's also a lot of differences. You know, I went from the extreme of working in the fastest, nimblest tech companies like Google to working in the U.S. government. And, you know, that took some adjustment. Uh, you know, <laughs> just a, a couple funny stories. Uh, one is, you know, when I left Google, the first job I had was I worked in the State Department in the Office of Global Women's Issues. So I went from an environment in engineering, which was 90% male, generally speaking, where I was often the only woman in the room, to working in the Office of Global Women's Issues, which was the exact opposite. It was like 95% female, and it was rare that there was man in the room. And you know, and that environment is so culturally different. I remember going to work on, on a Monday and coworkers, you know, asking me repeatedly, like, how was your weekend? I was like, why are you asking me how my weekend was? It was like <laughs> male geeks I worked with never asked me that. Um, 
And then when I got to USAID, where I was in a much more senior role, you know, one of the things that was the hardest for me to adjust to after being, you know, in this environment in Silicon Valley, which is very bottoms up and meritocratic, was that everyone just took me way too seriously. Now, I was used to being in a brainstorm with my teams and we had bad ideas around. And when I tried to do that at USAID, I would find out months later that people took whatever random thing I'd thrown out way too seriously and were trying to implement. I was like, why are you doing that? It was just some random thing I said. Um, right, right. That they're just not, they're not accustomed to the world of the spitball, right? Exactly. Um, and, and another thing I think that was really baffling to me at USAID, and I see this at a lot of nonprofits too, is that there's this culture where everyone and everything is outstanding. So literally at USAID, it's something like 80% of people are rated outstanding in their performance reviews. And every program or initiative we have, everyone talks about how outstanding it is because we're all there, like, you know, sacrificing pay, you know, working really hard and doing good. And so no one wants to criticize anything. Um, And so, you know, it's hard to actually get better in that environment where, where people aren't willing to look at ways that there may be flaws in what we're doing. Well, I just find that the, the varying experiences that you have are, are uh, you know, just even the the cultural shifts from uh, from you know Silicon Valley to the government to just working with interesting social startups is just probably a topic for another um, podcast. But I I wanted to focus uh, uh, turn our attention to the foundation for. Um, kind of what's at the heart of the book that you've written, which is called uh, Lean Impact, How to Innovate for Radically Greater Social Good. Gotta love it. And the book, um, the foundation for the book is a movement that has been dubbed the Lean Startup Movement. And it felt to me like it was important for our listeners to hear a little bit about this Lean Startup Movement because it feels um, a little bit foundational to the sort of the core tenets of the book that you have here called Lean Startup. So um, if you could sort of briefly describe what, what, what this Lean Startup Movement is. Yeah. So Lean Startup is a term coined by Eric Ries, um, who wrote a book about seven, eight years ago called The Lean Startup. And what he did was essentially capture the best practices for innovation that have underpinned this incredible pace of progress we've seen coming out of Silicon Valley. And he talks about Lean Startup as a methodology to develop products and, and services under conditions of extreme uncertainty. And you can imagine that this is the case for tech startup companies who are working with brand new technologies, building products that people have never done before, creating brand new business models, that there's a lot of risk. And so, you know, you hear about only, you know, nine out of 10 startups fail. And so what Lean right. Startup does is really talk about how this, um, this process of innovation really works under the hood. And it focuses on how do we accelerate our pace of learning? Because in, in the face of uncertainty, what we want to do is learn as fast as we can and eliminate risk as fast as we can. Um, and he focuses on doing so by engaging deeply and meaningfully with our customers, running lightweight experiments, and driving fast iteration cycles that are grounded in data. Now, this may seem like, I think a lot of people hear lean startup innovation, they think it's like a Silicon Valley fad, but 
the process for Lean Startup is not something Eric made up or something I made up. It's, it's really grounded in the scientific method. I think of it as an entrepreneurial version of the scientific method, that the whole idea is if you have uncertainty and you think that you have a potential solution that can address an issue, that we, we have a hypothesis of what we think will happen. And then we need to test that hypothesis and learn from, you know, what that test shows us. And that's really the, the essence of Lean Startup is that hypothesis-driven experimentation that allows us to learn as quickly as possible. So um, up until now, has this construct sort of lived primarily in the high-tech community and was part of the drive to write your book to say there are so many um, implications for the social sector for, uh, for them to learn from this? It, Lean Startup did start in the tech community. You know, I think it really emanated out of Silicon Valley because of the, you know, the incredible competitive pressures and the, you know, the nature of technology. But what I'm seeing around the world, not just with nonprofits, but with governments, with um, large companies, with with all types of institutions, including churches, is that people are starting to adopt these kinds of principles because we're seeing that the world is changing faster and faster and faster. And if we, if all our institutions don't do so as well, we're just going to fall further and further behind. So today you're seeing lots of large companies adopting lean startup and other innovation techniques. Eric talks a lot about his work with GE, one of the largest companies out there. Um, but, but also the government, you know, during my time in government, there are more and more parts of government that are trying to adopt these types of approaches. Again, because we're seeing that the world is changing faster and faster and, if we want to stay relevant, we need to figure out how to innovate, how to get ahead of the curve. Very interesting. So <clears throat> let's apply this specifically to the folks who are listening who would be board and staff leaders of nonprofits. How can a nonprofit have lean impact? Let's talk about how you think that this construct applies uh, within a nonprofit, and we'll, we'll get to an example shortly. Sure. So think of the premise of Lean Startup as designed to a methodology to handle conditions of extreme uncertainty. Where else do we have more uncertainty than in the social sector? You know, we work <laughs> on big, entrenched, complex challenges. Most of our solutions are either not effective enough, not sustainable enough, or not scalable enough. And even when we have solutions that really work well enough, the problems and context we work in are constantly changing. And I believe we're simply bringing the wrong tools to the table much of the time. But what we're very good at in the nonprofit sector is predictable execution based on a detailed plan. Uh -huh. um, and that makes a lot of sense when you have a solution that you know will work and you know can scale and you know will really fully solve the problem at hand. But in situations where I think we mostly are in, where we have more questions than we have answers and where our, our solutions are just insufficient, um, we need to emphasize a different approach, one that emphasizes the pace of learning. And that's really what innovation is about. So whether you call it lean impact, lean startup, or innovation, it's really about this question of how do we accelerate the pace of learning to solve the problems that we're trying to tackle and really be able to ultimately achieve our missions and get beyond just putting Band-Aids on the problems that are immediately in front of us. 
Um, I, I love this phrase, accelerating the pace of learning, because um, it, it should really speak to listeners because the truth of the matter is um, the one thing you hear from nonprofit leaders endlessly is we can't make change fast enough to keep up with, uh, you know, the exponential impact of the societal problem we're trying to face. And so um, there's got to be some secret sauce in this increasing the pace of learning that actually can un- uh, enable a nonprofit to get uh, further ahead of the game. So tell me about are there... <clears throat> are, are there kinds of nonprofits? You know, we all we all know that there are a vast array of sectors in the nonprofit, from advocacy to social services, from faith-based organizations, churches, you mentioned, synagogues. Is there a kind of nonprofit that has the best chance at benefiting from an approach like this, or is it pretty universal? You know, I I think the it's less the type of nonprofit than the degree of uncertainty. So if you're a nonprofit that is executing on something in the global development space, for example, vaccines are something that we have as a solution that we know are going to work. We know we have the funding available through the will of the various global organizations to be able to get vaccines to people who need them around the world. And so the issue there is really of execution. Um, Yep. But where we're working in problems where our current solutions really are insufficient and there's a high degree of uncertainty, that's where lean approaches, I think, really are applicable, whether you're an advocacy organization or or a service organization or a local community organization, that if what you want to do is if you see a gap between the need and the trajectory of what you're going to be able to deliver, then I think lean impact is for you. Certainly, it's going to look different depending on the nature of your organization, the type of work you do, whether you're creating a service or you're building a product or you're trying to change policy. What the application of lean will look like is going to look different. But fundamentally, what lean is trying to do is ask if you're if there is a gap between what you have today and where you need to be, you're going to need to take some risk. So how do you take that risk as intelligently as possible so that we're not wasting a lot of time, precious time and money going down the wrong path? So we're talking with Ann Mae Chang, who is the author of Lean Impact, How to Innovate for Radically Greater Social Good. And uh, I'll read some of the testimonials on this book so that uh, you don't have to take my word for it or Ann Mae's that this is a book worth uh, adding to your library. But and there are some some core elements of Lean Impact that you talk about in, in this book. And I wonder if you could take them one at a time and sort of define them briefly and and I promise we'll make sure that we bring them to life with a with a good example of an organization. We're also going to talk about what gets in the way of this kind of um, the the way of this kind of um, this kind of thinking. So I think what you talked about, Anne May, was thinking big, starting small, and relentlessly seeking impact. So can you take them one by one and uh, and give us a you know bring them to life for us a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, So in in the course of writing this book, I interviewed over 200 organizations, big and small, domestic and international, across different sectors, nonprofits and for-profits, funders and, and implementers, and try to distill down for the ones that are most successful, what were, what was there in common? And and these three principles really stood out. Um, So the first is to think big. Um, And in my experience in the nonprofit world, we tend to plan based on constraints, 
right? We have this much money, we have this many people, we have a grant opportunity that's this size and scope. And we look at, with these limited resources, what can I do? And there's yep. usually some good we can do. And you know, we, we plow forward and we do as much as we can with the limited resources we can. But what I wanna challenge people to think about is to flip that equation. And instead of planning on the constraints, to plan based on the needs. To, to really be audacious about, hey, what is it going to take to move the needle on whatever problem I care about? Um, and unless we set our sights high enough, I think we're never going to get there. Mm-hmm. So that's the think big part. And we can talk about what, and, and you're absolutely right, this scarcity model in nonprofit that is, um, in my mind, uh, amplified by boards of directors. And we'll come back to them in a moment. And I can uh, give it a quick example for that, maybe to, to bring it to yeah. life. Um, Go to it. Go for it. Yeah, there's a nonprofit called Earn that is in, you know, based in the Bay Area here that has focused on helping low-income Americans develop a habit of savings. And after 10 years, they were being awarded for being at the top of their field. They had 7,000 micro-savings accounts that they'd opened. Um, and we're getting all sorts of recognition. And then one day, the CEO, Ben Mangan, woke up and he thought, you know, we're, you know, we're being lauded for being at the top of our field. And yet there's 50 to 70 million people in the U.S. who could benefit from what we're doing. And 7,000 is only a drop in the bucket. And so he came up with this audacious goal that he announced at an awards dinner that they were going to reach a million people in five years. Now, that's a huge leap from 7,000 people in 10 years. Um, But but by setting that audacious goal, and they had no idea how he was going to get there, by the way. But by setting that audacious goal, it forced him and the organization to think differently about their work. You know, they were going around sort of doing in-person visits with people, doing matching funds for savings and so forth. And that just wasn't realistic if they were going to get to a million people and, and more beyond that. Um, and so it, it forced them to completely change their model. They ended up creating a technology platform so that they could reach a lot more people a lot more cheaply. Makes sense. Um, yep. And in the first year since rolling out the technology platform, they reached 85,000 people, more than 10 times as many as they did in their first 10 years put together. And so it's just one example of how when you set a, an audacious goal, where you really look at the size and the need that you want to address, that it forces you to take a very different look at, at what you're doing. So the the second element you have feels a little like it stands in contrast to the first one. So I'm supposed to think big, but I'm supposed to start small. How does that work? <laughs> yeah, it does. It does seem a little bit in contrast. Although what I would say is that we tend to do the opposite. We tend to think small and start big, meaning that we we aren't <laughs> audacious enough. But then when we start. We start with way too much. Um, we, we start way too big for the level of confidence we should have in deploying something new. Um, and so the idea of starting small is that if you start small, I think you can make a much bigger impact over time. And let me tell you why I, th- I think that is that if you're working with five or ten or fifty people and experimenting with some new intervention that you have you can learn much more quickly and cheaply and adapt much more quickly than you can if you're rolling something out to hundreds or thousands of people. Because you can experiment, you can watch much more closely, you can try a lot of different things without carrying a huge amount of infrastructure. And when we're working in conditions of uncertainty, 
it allows us to test for our risks. One, you know, you talked in the beginning of, uh, in your introduction about how it's so hard for nonprofits to take risks. And I think the reason for that is that we, when we do take risks or when we think about taking risks, we think about taking big risks. And that huh. means that we're risking failing big. What Lean is saying instead is, yes, we need to take risks, but we should take small risks so that when we fail, we fail small. If you try uh -huh. something with five people and it doesn't work, you're unlikely to get fired by your board. But if you try something with a thousand people and it doesn't work, then you might be in trouble. Right. Right. That makes total sense. It makes total sense. And I assume the key to that is uh, when you start small is identifying what you expect to learn from that test, right? So that, so you know what success and failure is going to look like, right? Exactly. And that's where defining a clear hypothesis is important. And I talk in the book about for a social innovation, for innovation in, in this world of social good, there's really three dimensions that we need to deliver on value, growth, and impact. You know, value mm -hmm. is, is this something people even want? A lot of times yep. we, we think what people, we, we know what people need. It's like eat your spinach, but it's not necessarily <laughs> what people want. Um, yep. And impact is like, if people want it, does it actually work? Does it deliver the social benefit that we're looking for? It, it's amazing, but all too often, we don't actually know the answer to that question is, is it working uh, to, to make the difference that we intend? And then finally, if people want it and it works, the question is growth. How is this going to scale to, uh, to accelerate growth so that we'll eventually meet the size of the need? And I think that when we start small, the idea is to run experiments based on hypothesis to validate our assumptions around value, impact, and growth and optimize for all three of these while we're still small so that then we can really hone in on the best solution that has all the elements that are needed to succeed before we invest in scaling up. Sounds really, really smart. Um, you kind of had me at hello as I read your book, but I do know that things get in the way of this kind of thinking. And um, what have you found to be the most significant obstacles to this kind of, uh, to this kind of an approach? I think one of the biggest obstacles, you know, and, and this is where the third principle of lean impact comes in to relentlessly seek impact. This seems uh -huh. obvious, like we're in this to serve our missions and so forth. But I talk to so many nonprofits that have really inspiring missions. But when you go inside and you go sit in on their meetings, really what trade-offs are being made on is, you know, is this going to get us, win us the next grant? Um, yep. Not, is this going to be the best thing for impact? And part of, you know, one of the phrases that is used a lot in the innovation world is uh, the idea that we need to fall in love with our problem, not the solution, <laughs> right? Because, in, and I think this is even harder in the nonprofit space because our solution is a thing we identify with. It's a thing we put yeah. on our website. It's a thing we're constantly pitching to funders. It's a thing we have pride of ownership in. And so we get very wed to this is our differentiator, is our unique design of this intervention, our unique way of doing things, our unique branding. Um, and the reality is, you know, I can, I've talked to many nonprofits who work in the same space and every one of them will tell me that their solution is the best one out there. Um, yeah. And they can't all be right. 
Um, and so I think we need to show <laughs> a little humility and say, hey, there may be elements of what I'm doing that's good, but like, let's look at the data. Is what I'm doing really better than other people out there? Or am I just getting excited because it's something I have a stake in because you know I'm invested in personally or I want my organization to have a certain role um, or, I'm, uh, or I think that's a this particular technology is going to be interesting to use. Um, we need to get away from all of that and really focus on the problem and let the data that shows us how effective we're being and, and essentially and how cost effective we're being more importantly, help us drive those decisions. Um, you, you, this really struck a chord for me as it relates to people who start organizations. And I, I find myself often swimming in a pond with um, nonprofit founders. And nonprofit founders are absolutely deeply, deeply committed to solving some kind of societal problem. But they, but they come to that more often than not with um, – a very clear, um, hard to uh, shift sense of what the solution ought to be, and um, we see it a lot <clears throat> as as organizations grow and founders start to stretch. You know, the organization starts to stretch beyond the founder. That board members start to think about, along with their staff, about different ways of solving the problem, but that there's such an intense um, attachment to the solution that was originally identified that led the organization to start to begin with. I'm sure you see this too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is such this strong identification with the solution in the nonprofit sector, I think even more than in the business world. Um, because the business world, we, we have... Uh, systems in the business world that force us through regulation and law to maximize shareholder value or maximize profits, right? So there's a real clear metric by which we measure whether we're on the right track. And, you, you know, board members, executives have the responsibility to maximize profits. I think we need to take that same attitude and bring it into the nonprofit world, not to maximize profits in our case, but to maximize impact, Right. So can we need to ask ourselves as we make every decision, is this the decision that will maximize impact? Um, and that goes to, you know, really taking a hard look at is is the solution that you have today the best solution out there? Would it be better if you partnered with another nonprofit, if you adopted the practices that another organization has come up with? Um, if you even merged with a non, another nonprofit, which is heresy, I know, in this world. Um, but But I think we don't ask these questions because we get so wrapped up in perpetuating the organization and perpetuating the solution rather than really staying laser focused on the problem and, and the idea of what's going to really deliver on our mission. I, um, it, it would be, it would be um, I think, irresponsible of me not to talk about um, the boards of nonprofits as, um, you know, I, I thought to myself as potential obstacles to this because they're managing risk, they're um, often reluctant to, you know, sort of make that kind of commitment to increase resources, to try something new, um, and that their their mindset is not is not in this place. 
Um, it is your this conversation today is reminding me of just how important it is to build a board that is a key thought partner and the emphasis on the word partner with the staff to really have these expansive conversations about um, uh, focusing in on the problem and having expansive conversations about the solution. Um, and I, I, I wonder if you have any advice for nonprofit leaders about how to attempt to shift the mindset of their boards, because I do see that as a pretty big obstacle here. Yeah, I, I agree that that is a huge obstacle. Um, there's a couple of things that I think are good ways to get started. The first is, and this can be part of a strategic planning conversation, is to really agree on the long-term goal and metrics um, that that help determine whether we're succeeding. Um, a lot of times we focus on those metrics being the number of people we've reached or <laughs> the number of dollars we've raised. Yep. Um, and I think, you know, it, if we step back and look at the mission, those are not metrics that really matter. And in the Lean Startup book, Eric talks about these kinds of metrics as vanity metrics, because you can reach a lot of people, you can raise a lot of money, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing a lot of good. Um, so instead, I think having the conversation with the board to say, what are, what's our long-term goal? Sort of like earned it to say, like, is it, is it to reach 7,000 people or is it to reach a million people or eventually 50 million people? What is that long-term goal? And then what are the metrics that matter to show that we're making progress towards that goal? And so I th when we can get alignment around what the goal really is and what those metrics are, that forms a framework to have that conversation about being to look at what are we doing today and is it putting us on a trajectory to get there? Um, and th those metrics that matter are usually the unit level metrics, things like what is the adoption rate, the conversion rate, the unit costs, the success rate of our, you know, whatever we're doing, that if we are able to tune to and optimize to, to improve dramatically, will make a much bigger difference on the trajectory that we're on. So I think this, I, I always see the starting point of innovation as having that audacious goal, having a clear objective that you want to achieve that's not possible with business as usual, so that you have to bring in new ideas, you have to take some risks, you have to try something different. The other thing I would say is that, um, you know, to your question about risk, is to start small, yeah. run small experiments and build confidence over time. Again, try something with five people. You know, you're, you don't want to take a huge risk off the bat and say, we're going to completely pivot our model and try something that we've never tried before and hope for the best. Um, but what if you just try something with five people, even put out a flyer that describes a different offering and see, is this something people are going to be more engaged with? Is it something that they might be willing to pay for? Running small experiments like that will get you some data that then you can go back to the board and say, hey, when we positioned what we did in this different way, we got twice as many people signing up or we got people saying they'd pay twice as much or whatever it is that you're trying to get to. Um, and then that can then build to the next level of experiment. You know, I know boards, you know, can be very conservative. Um, and and to, to put it in the context of something I've worked with when I was at USAID, I didn't have exactly a board, but we reported to Congress, which mm -hmm. I think, of, if anything, is more conservative than your typical board because uh -huh. you know, they're responsible to the American people and to taxpayers. And yet I was able to go to Congress and go up to the Hill and talk to folks and 
talk about some of the experiments we were doing at USAID at the lab um, with a program we had called Development Innovation Ventures. We, we were a funder rather than a nonprofit in this case, but we had a model that was based on venture capital where we tear up funding. We give out small grants to that were risky to lots of different organizations to be able to spread out our bets and, and try lots of different things and then double down when something worked. And because we were giving out these small grants, I was able to go up to Congress and say, hey, you know, several of our grants failed, but these few succeeded and look at what they did and never got a question about them. And in fact, I got a lot of folks that were really excited for the honesty because they, you know, they were always getting told how everything was outstanding and yes. you know, had to try to dig under the surface and figure out what was really going on. And so I think it was, um, they really appreciated the honesty and they also could see because it was a small failure, because it was a small amount of money, um, it was okay. And they could also see the successes that came out of being able to take those risks. And I think the same thing can be true with board members. I totally agree. And uh, to take out my soapbox for just a moment, um, this is the perfect argument for building a strong, robust, diverse, engaged board, because it is that kind of board that will be receptive to this kind of uh, way of thinking. Uh, otherwise, you're going to knock and nobody's going to be home. So I want to um, end by having you talk for just a few minutes about an example that you used in your book. And if you could, <clears throat> and this was a, an organization called Harambe, uh, which matched, it's in uh, South Africa, Johannesburg, matching disadvantaged youth with employers seeking qualified talent. And there, um, uh, as I recall, there's some crazy statistic about the, um, the vast number of unemployed uh, youth between the ages of uh, 14 and 35 and that it, it had reached really sort of crisis proportions. And um, uh, if you could sort of briefly identify sort of some of the, the ways in which they thank, they thank, they thunk big, started small, uh, and uh, as a way of really making the folks who are listening here say, oh, yeah, yeah, I get that. I could try that. Yeah. So, um, you know, Harambe started by thinking big. They looked at this, this big audacious goal of, uh, you know, 40% of youth being unemployed, two and a, two and a half million youth in South Africa. Um, and they'd set a shorter term goal that they wanted to start by reaching 50,000, which is still a pretty big number for a new nonprofit in their first five years, 50,000. And compared to, I think, a lot of organizations that work with unemployed youth in the United States, that's a big number. Yeah. Um, but they started small. They, they realized they weren't sure how to solve this problem. Um, what they first started out by doing is they found some, worked with some youth and gave them assessments in you know, math and English to try to assess their skills to figure out what jobs they could connect them to. Um, but they found that few of these youths could pass these basic assessments. And so, so, <laughs> so they, they, wanted to, they wanted to find these kids jobs and they wanted to match them to employers, but they didn't have the basic skills to get these jobs. Exactly. And so before they, you know, set up a whole system to like do this job matching and so forth, they they ran this test to see like, would they even have the right skills? And it turns out that most of them didn't. And so they pivoted very early on to instead look at, like, could we assess learning potential? Because the education system was failing these kids. They weren't really getting the right skills that they needed. 
And so they found some assessments that could assess learning potential and instead gave these kids these assessments and took the ones that really had that potential and trained them. Um, and so again, instead of hiring a bunch of people and setting up the infrastructure, they worked with a consulting firm to run this training, brought in 43 youth, had these contractors train them to see whether by you know bridging, they called it a bridge, um, their potential to the skills that they needed, they could successfully get into jobs. And of their 43 job seekers, 39 of them got placed in the jobs. And so they saw that that was possible, that you could take people who didn't have the skills and through a fairly short period of time, build up those basic skills and get them into jobs. And so that was like one of their early experiments. Very interesting. And so the pivot there was, let's, uh, they wanted to, they came into the business of matching kids or young people with employers. And that was their solution, but they unearthed a bigger issue or problem that they had to solve, which is that, that these young people were not qualified for these jobs because their education had not prepared them to do these jobs successfully. Yes, exactly. Very, very interesting. And I I think that that's, you know, I, I and I, we, we're almost out of time, but I just also think that... <laughs> You know, isn't the real um, key to success in whether it's business or the nonprofit sector is about asking the right questions, right? It's about saying, okay, <laughs> you know, I, I often find when I work with clients, they'll say, we have a problem and it's this, can you help us do this? And I'm inevitably, they are totally asking the wrong questions. Don't yes. you find, and I, it feels like in Harambe, they were trying to solve a problem, but they weren't asking that question, that, that sort of more foundational question that allowed, that the answer to which allowed them to pivot and be more successful. Right. And that's where the goal is so important and really focusing on what does success look like. And as Harambe went forward, you know, what they really focused on in, in terms of relentlessly seeking impact is they knew it wasn't sufficient just to get youth into the first job, that they had data that showed that if the youth stayed in a job for, for a year, then they would be on a track where they would continue to be employed throughout their lifetimes. And right. so they started focusing on retention, not just on placement. Um, and one of the things that they found is they were placing youth into retail jobs, you know, at a, a supermarket, you know, doing checkout and stuff like that. Um, and they're seeing a lot of youth drop out of these jobs, that they yep. would get placed, but they would leave soon thereafter. And so they started digging into that. And what they found was a lot of the youth just weren't prepared to be standing all day. It was not something that they, you know, had experience with. They, you know, it was something that they were very uncomfortable with. And so it caused them to change their own training so that during the few weeks that they were training youth before they went to jobs, they would do the training with the youth standing so that the youth would get accustomed to this. So that by the time they got to the job, it was no big deal. And so it's really, you know, it, removing each hurdle one after the other and staying focused on like, if we need to retain youth in jobs, what's getting in the way? And a lot of times you find surprising things. Yeah. Uh, and, and simple things like that. That's the yeah. standing thing is just kind of a remarkable little aha that makes a big difference. Um, exactly. So, um, uh, we are, uh, just about out of time and I wanted, I wanted it to give you the last word here. Um, uh, so I've got some board and staff leaders who are listening to this and they're thinking, I should definitely be going down this road. Um, 
separate and apart from the obvious answer, which is to, to purchase a copy of your book called Lean Impact, How to Innovate for Radically Greater Social Good. And I just have to read this here. Um, this is a, a testimonial on the back of your book from the president of the Ford Fa uh, Rockefeller Foundation. We're living in a pivotal moment where rapid advancements in science, technology, and innovation make it more possible than ever to give all people the chance at a better life. NMA's call to embrace innovation to advance the cause of social justice will help reshape the way we think about fighting inequity around the world. Uh, clearly, based on that alone, people should pick up the book. Um, how would you get started if this is not the kind of world you live in today in your nonprofit? It involves change management. It involves changing the culture of your organization, getting your board to think differently. Any quick advice on how you would get started? Yeah, four very quick things. So one, start with that audacious goal. That, that audacious goal gives you a North Star so that as you're making decisions and setting priorities, you at least know what, what you're trying to head to. That is not just your kind of immediate needs that you're trying to fulfill. Um, and then talk to your customers. I think we mm -hmm. often don't spend enough time talking to whether it's beneficiaries or stakeholders, engaging them in every stage of the design, testing, and feedback process. That's something we can immediately do. And play devil's advocate. Um, you know, ask yourself the hard questions, ask your colleagues the hard questions to identify what are the things that might go wrong? Yeah. What are the things that need to go right? And finally, experiment. Don't wait to ask for permission to get your funder to allow you to experiment. Try running a few simple experiments just with five or 10 people to see if you can learn something, see if an alternative to what you're doing today might be better. Um, you know, th that will... Get, your, get those juices flowing and start the learning process that then you can build on. Uh, I love all those ideas. And I love the notion of not necessarily uh, when I, I like that, not asking permission and not making it a sort of a big global initiative of risk taking that will actually probably have board members running screaming from the room. But as opposed to these sort of... Um, uh, baby steps, step-by-step -step kinds of things where, and you said, maybe you don't see them even as pilots. You just see them as a quick learn, you know, easy learning opportunities to talk to our clients, try something a little different, see what we learn and make it almost more casual and informal that can grow into something bigger so that you're not actually triggering a board member around risk um, and their aversion to it. So um, I love everything you said today, Anne May, and um, I feel like the folks that are listening today, that you really gave them a way to enter this space. Sometimes people hear these new constructs and they're like, okay, I don't have time. I, um, you know, I, I don't need a new construct. I just need that grant to come through. And I, and what I think you, you've done here in this conversation and equally so in the book is provided an opportunity for people to put their toe in the water and to start thinking differently. And I, I feel like the most powerful thing you said is that people fall in love with their solutions and not their problems. And if that is, if that is the only takeaway listeners today get from this podcast, you will have indeed had a very good day at the office, Anne May. So thank you so much for joining us, for writing this book, and for taking 
you know, and sort of really understanding both sectors so well that you can actually create a way of thinking in this book that in it, that honors both of these sectors and um, enables um, enables the nonprofit sector to really sort of grab onto some of these concepts. So thank you so much. My pleasure, Joan. Thanks for having me. So um, as we close out here, just a couple of quick reminders. Um, uh, You can always find free content regularly at my blog at joangary.com with two R's. My blog is intended to talk to both board and staff leaders because I think of them as co-pilots in a nonprofit twin engine jet. So too with my podcast, we've got now I think over 70 or 80 uh, episodes. You can find the whole list of them on my website as well as on iTunes. So think of them as an encyclopedia. Think about the knot you're trying to untangle. Take a look at the podcast topics, and I bet you'll find one that will sing out to you. Lastly, um, Anne May may have a book, but Joan also has one too, uh, Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership. Um, you can learn lots about it at nonprofitsaremessy.com. And uh, I would be remiss if I did not also talk about um, how we help the small and the mighty nonprofit uh, board and staff leaders through our online membership site at the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, which you can learn more at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. We only open registration twice a year. So if you like what you see over there, please add your name to the wait list. We expect to open the doors sometime in the spring and you'll want to know more about that too, I suspect. So until then, um, thank you again, as always, for everything that you do to uh, repair the world in ways large and small. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at joangary.com reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.